0: When mommy drinks, she doesn't pay attention to <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Maple Syrup Show, where designers discuss design. We're on episode 50. Woohoo! Yeah, what's the story, Morning Glory? I love any Oasis reference, uh, <laughs> so that makes me happy. Uh, but let's pass it off to our illustrious. Illustrious, do you say it? <laughs> Illustrious? I
0: liked, I Illustrious. Yeah, it's illustrial. your story. You can yeah, tell yeah, it however you want.
1: I, I can make this story up how I want. I can make yeah. words up if I want. Yeah. Um, and we'll discuss that in further detail. But uh, yeah, it's Sen and I, and special co-host Stephanie Straw. How are you doing, Stephanie?
0: I am doing quite well, thank you. I, every time I hear that, I feel like if I, I've never been to Canada. If I enter Canada, I want that song to be playing, like when I get in.
1: Oh
2: you yeah, that? that's, <laughs> for that's, sure. That's that's, that's it, the... it, it. Could be the new Canadian national anthem.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Like we were t- discussing before we went to air, that board games need pairings mm-hmm. of music and and uh, snacks. So do borders. Yes, And yes. Uh, and so that's the that's the border crossing music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Border crossing music.
2: We uh, we indulged um, the one tar with a whole bunch of snacks <laughs> when she came over. We she, made her buy like all the candy bars she wanted to, buy all the candy bars that she couldn't get in the States. Do you hear yeah. that the,
1: the video file got
2: corrupted? I know, I was so sad.
1: So she, so she <laughs> ate all those and suffered for nothing.
2: Yeah, because there's one that she really did not like. <laughs> I totally warned her away from that one, but she's no, I've got to try it, I've got to yeah. try it. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. Oh,
1: so anyways, uh, what have you been playing Daryl Sir? Uh, actually, it has been all about the prototypes this week. I feel like I just started five new games. One of them with one of the our hosts on the show. Uh, I am making a game with Stephanie Straw. Pretty excited about that. Yay, really? how'd
0: that yeah. Yeah. Uh, just I, it why did you it call just? The story, it, 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 it just happened. So I I got this idea for a game, and I'm I'm really trying to. Like, write them down or maybe bounce it off somebody immediately so that I can just kind of get it going because I have all these ideas that never come to fruition. So I just was like, you know what? I I'm I have an idea. I'm going to message Daryl right now and bounce it off him. There we kind know. of talked about that one idea for a second and kind of, kind of left that. And then, like, five minutes later, I was like, oh, I just got another idea. <laughs> and then I sent him that, and he was like, I am interested in this one, which... Means that he wasn't as interested in the first no, one. No, no,
2: no, no. I totally no. think he was not interested at all. It's all timing. It's all timing.
0: It I, is, it I is, I is all timing.
1: This game first.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. So I'm excited right. about it. We haven't gotten to um he just like jumped all over it, like made like a PDF of like our ideas and, and jotted it down. So hopefully we'll get to chat after this show, after after dark, and uh maybe we'll have a game uh tomorrow. I don't know.
1: <laughs> That's pretty like cool. That. Like that. Yeah. Any, any yeah. hints on what it's about? No. No, no hints. We can't do that. So uh-huh. we we need the excitement and I made, hype.
0: I made Daryl sign a, a, like, mental NDA. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> mental NDA. Mental. It's signed right there. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I'm working on that. I'm working on a game. I'll just hint the title with Hack. And we just had a meeting again today. But we're working on a game called Zookeeper Moonkeeper. Very right. excited about that. And then I'm making a game with Brian Lewis, and it's um, a worker placement air- airport game. Right. Very excited about that. And then uh, Stephen and I are back at making another game with uh, a game called Shields. So, oh, right, that
2: one. I remember you talking about that. Yeah, before. so
1: that those are kind of like what I have been doing, but what I'm excited about is I'm playing Lagrangia, um on Friday... And I'm playing, first time ever, Die Masher. Oh yes. On Saturday.
2: Yes, with uh, Scott.
1: Yeah, I'm so pumped about that. That's I've cool. Never, I, won't, I won't be I've able never, to go. I
2: have, uh, I have to go to Toronto that day,
1: so. I've never played that game. It's super high on my have to try list. So.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's it's one of the. It's a classic. So it just takes some time. So. But you have fun.
1: It's good. Yeah, I'm pumped. Yes.
3: I'm um, pumped for you.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, good. it's gonna be five hours of glory. That's what it's gonna be. I mean,
0: we we you hope it will be. Oh yeah. no!
1: It, oh, it will be. It should be.
0: <laughs> it's the kind it of should.
1: game that just
2: it gets that way anyway. So yeah. Um, but how about you, you?
3: stuff?
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so I uh have been playing i've been teaching a lot of games lately um i haven't Good really team. learned learned any new games but um my friendly local game store just had their grand opening last weekend for their new location so um i was there for 15 hours working helping them coordinate stuff shout um, out from the goblin yeah game game, game goblin, goblin
2: that's right yeah no no um, stuff are you paid to do that or is that just out of the goodness of your own heart
0: um, so I did it for a really long time, and then the owner was like, okay, you really helped me out, so I would like to be able to compensate you for this. So um, I do get a discount on games, and then he pays me for my time with their help with social media and whenever I help coordinate events. So.
2: Excellent. Yes. Excellent. So good things come back to you, right, Carmen? Right,
0: yeah, yeah. And I actually I'm actually kinda like, no, you don't have to pay me. Like, but he's like, no, like legally <laughs> I do. But <laughs> legal is a good
1: thing. Legal yeah, is a good yeah, thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, but they're they're really cool. So I'm I taught uh people Quantum, Lanterns, uh Sheriff of Nottingham, uh Roll for the Galaxy, and what else? Uh, and then we just played Sushi Go. I think that was it.
2: That's cool. It's yeah. a lot of good games. So, yeah. Good games.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been doing.
2: Excellent. So today, I actually finally got around to playing Pirates vs. Dinosaurs. And Daryl's like, why did you do that? <laughs> why would you do that? Because Design my challenge. kids, my Are you kids wanted to play it. So. Spoiler,
0: the Pirates won.
2: They did. The, the dinosaurs really don't win. Um, so this is a game by Richard Linnaeus and uh, with art by the wonderful Josh Capel, And it is, it's, it's actually, you know, for playing with Ethan and Eli, playing with the monkeys, it's actually not that bad of a game. There is a lot to take that. There's a lot of just, you know, dumping dinosaurs on people and trying to get there. Um... You know, and Daryl says it the best. It's a game that has really good components, and it's got such a neat flavor to it. It's just, mechanically, it, it it's uh, it seems a little bit undercooked.
0: I mean, it, R- Richard Lanius is kind of known for his brutality in his games. He's not, he's not forgiving. His co-ops are super hard. I mean, Defenders of the Realm, I played, like, probably 25 times before we won our first game, so... Right. Yeah, he's he, that's that's kind of how he 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 designs games. So I
1: I feel like though this is like a game that he had an idea. F- I don't know, and I'm sorry for speaking for Richard Lanius here, but I feel like it was a game that he had an idea for, and then maybe like he forgot he signed that game, and then it just got made, and it was like, oh whoa, like you made that game? I only pitched you an idea.
2: No, actually it was an idea from the son of the Jolly Roger guys.
1: And, yeah, and it Richard right.
2: to make the game.
1: Yeah. And it 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 feels half cooked. Like
0: and, and that it, might be why, because it wasn't like his idea that he then brought, you know, that it was sort of like a commissioned idea. Because yeah. it's you know, my
1: number one game that I want to make print and play rules for using everything in the box. Like <laughs> just first first You know, like I was just watching I rewatched Apollo thirteen. You know where they have to make like the square square filter fit in the round (laughs) hole? And they're like, step number one, rip the cover off of the rule off of the your your mission plan. That's what I want to do. Step one, rip rip the rule book. And then step two, make this game into a good game.
0: I, I love Richard Lania so Which, much. Which,
1: yeah, with all respect to a far better designer than I, yeah, that, that game is just one of the ones that didn't connect for me.
2: Interesting. So uh, we're telling stories about games, but let's uh, let's move on to our guests and yeah. bring them in. We're going to bring Sarah Quinn. And me. Oops. She's going ashore shore and broadcast. There she okay. is. And we're going to bring in Jim Pinto and Jesse Wright. And last but not least, the person who showed up last, Brendan Quinn, Sarah's husband. Um, let me see. Oh, i got to bring him. There he goes. Oops, clicky-clicky. There it is. Wonderful. So um, we have today a panel of game designers who are here for one specific purpose and one specific purpose only, and that is to talk about storytelling in games. The whole reason why this came up is because of Eves, Eves Tournier, who is one of our friends, co-designer with a a couple games with me and whatnot, and he's actually online right now. I should get him to watch, but he probably won't. because He's probably tired. Um, (laughs) Jesse and I have made a game where it's a storytelling game, and we really like it. Um, And Eves loves Cthulhu. Um, and you'll notice that Brendan on his...
1: Loves Brandon Brendan Cthulhu.
2: has this Cthulhu thing over here. And, uh, but Ys he loves Cthulhu, and he's making this whole series of solo play games called Arkham Noir, where you're a private investigator. <laughs> H.P. Lovecraft as a private investigator. It's super cool. Um, and we said, hey, maybe you'd like to play our game, which is kind of in the same realm, but it's a storytelling game. And he said, no, I don't like storytelling games. I like games that tell me a story. Um, and we just called them lazy. But then Sarah jumped in and he said, oh, storytelling games. Well, you should try these games, these protocol system games uh, by Jim Pinto, who happens to be here as well, um, because they are the games that give players a lot of agency. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about role playing games. Let's talk about how do we get storytelling into board games as a meaningful mechanic. Um, How do we do all of that? And then we're going to answer questions from our audience. So audience members over there in YouTube land, if you have any questions for Jim, for Jesse, for Sarah, for Blake, for Steph, Daryl, myself, about storytelling games and storytelling in games, let us know. All right, so uh, let's get this started. Um, Sarah, let's start with you. Yeah. What? Uh, well, introduce yourself first of all.
3: Oh, okay. Hi. Uh, I'm Sarah Quinn. Uh, I do writing for, uh, for Pinnacle, for Savage World Systems. I've written a couple of protocols. Um, and uh, uh, right now we're just uh, working on doing game cons that focus on storytelling games in our area. Excellent. Yeah.
2: Very deep. And Brendan, tell us about yourself. Oh, Brandon, I think your mic's off. Well, I don't see your mic being off, but I can't hear you. Hmm. Okay, we're gonna move to Jim for a second. You fix that. Move to Jim. Jim, tell us about yourself, sir.
4: I I'm horrible at this part of of everything, so I don't know what to say. I've been in the industry a long <laughs> time. I've made a lot of games. <laughs>
2: a lot of games. Uh, Jim has designed board games. Jim has designed role-playing games. He's kind of done the whole thing. Um,
0: Jim Jim Suzanne Sheldon says that you're a schmuck for moving away from her.
4: Whoa. (laughs) That hurts. That hurts.
0: She she lives
4: lives 30 minutes from me instead of five. Uh, (laughs) So she was right around the corner up until a month ago.
2: And Jesse. Hi, um,
5: I design board games. I mean, th- th- you guys have seen me before. I
2: used to, I'm occasionally a co-host, so this time there I'm you go. on the um, other side. Brandon, did you get your mics fixed? No, we still don't have a mic seem... on Brandon. Let me just where see does... where we are. We're going to mime. Yeah, we mime. might have to mind that. That's, um, that's going to be
1: a new challenge. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron,
0: can you can you just read his lips and translate every single <laughs> yes, thing that he says? Yes, I will. No, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can I do it as like part of the game, like bad lip, yeah, bad yeah. lip reading? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Brandon,
0: Brandon says he's honored to be on the show with me as the guest um, co-host. Okay.
3: Hey, that's- <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Wow, that's amazing. You're really good at that.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, I'm um, that gonna actually, ask I'm first- sorry. Oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, it reminds me um of a game that's been reprinted. Um, Jim, what was it? They were selling it at Gen Con, uh, where you're one of the players is a ghost Oh, Mysterium. With- yeah. Mysterium yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a little bit of a merge there between board games and storytelling games, maybe. Yeah
2: yeah that's good. um somebody oh Brian Casey has asked first question, what exactly are we calling storytelling games and two so it's a two parter here don't all games tell a story? Jim, what do you think?
4: Uh, to answer the second part, no, not every game tells a story in fact, very few tell the story. Most veneers are just kind of painted on to get you to some abstract mechanic and trick you into think you're you're telling a story when you're not um uh, I think the the entire movement is called the story games movement. If you're talking about the role playing end of it, I don't know what to call it. If the whole all gaming starts taking on storytelling as a medium, but uh, I I don't think we've patched that just yet. No.
0: Yeah, I think all games could tell like an adventure, possibly, but maybe not a story.
4: Yeah, that's a good that's a good re- rebuttal to what I said. That's even faster. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Um, well, uh, like the person that was talking to you on Twitter, some people just want to be told a story, but I feel like that's kind of just watching a movie. Um, it would It's nice when, uh, when the players have some agency because then you're actually having this communication, this sort of um, creation between all of you, this collaborative thing that you're making. Right, okay. <laughs>
2: Um, one second. Steph? Yes, sir. Can you... Oh, actually, Daryl has that. Daryl has all the questions from YouTube going <clears> on. <throat>
1: is that true, Daryl? That is true. But all right.
0: There's, yeah, there's there's one question I know that we have from the audience, and Daryl right, can ahead. ask that.
1: Well, I mean, I, I would ask Suzanne's question if we could talk about yeah. character creation versus canned characters. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, I'll, I'll throw that Jesse's way first. You want to talk about character creation versus just canned characters?
5: Sure. Is that the whole question?
1: That is. So that you can go,
5: it's open-ended. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, the distinction seems pretty obvious, where canned characters are games like you usually get in board games, right, where they hand you a little sheet that says, oh, this is your character. You've got, you know, aid strength, and this is your name, and there's a little story on the back. Whereas character creation, um, you know, players have agency, they're making decisions about who the character is and where they were, and you become invested in what they are. I mean, I mean, there's a significant difference between making a character for an RPG game or even making an NPC for an RPG and sitting down and playing, you know, uh, a fantasy flight adventure board game. And all of them involve characters and character creation decisions, but... In RPGs, you're really creating the character instead of just being handed some some, right, stats, yeah. some stats.
1: I'm going to bounce that question to Jim. I'm curious. Uh, I hear you have a few strong opinions.
4: <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what else I can say to what Daryl said. I think the canned <laughs> characters that come out in role-playing games are usually the stereotypes we know, and so they become one-dimensional. They don't really even have... A goal or anything in mind they're just something in the environment um, all the characters from Eldritch Horror strike me that way even though they're interesting they're all very one-dimensional um, Zombicide comes across that way the list goes on I think when you get to make your character you're looking to get your character into that third dimension where not only are there things that you want to do but there's things that, about yourself that get in the way of you accomplishing those things and mm-hmm. that's when characters really get interesting
0: do you think there's a, a benefit to having those canned characters? I mean, like, they're they're kind of sort of the easy builds or easy setups like the barbarian and the mage and the cleric and stuff like that. Is is there a benefit at all to having those, like, in your game or with your game?
4: If you're marketing your game to casual gamers, absolutely, because you want them to be able to... Grok or gravitate to something within minutes, within seconds, and say, oh, yeah, I identify with that character, the roller-skating ninja. Yeah. I I do
0: identify with that character. (laughs) But if you're a
4: serious gamer and you're willing to invest 5, 10, 15 minutes at the beginning of the game to find out more about somebody, you want want those deeper ingredients.
0: Does it feel like an insult for serious gamers if that's included with a game? Is it kind of like...
4: Feels like pandering. I
2: don't know if it's an insult. Yeah. But it Feels like pandering. So, um, uh, Brandon, is your mic on yet? Mm, nope. well. No. No. Same so we're gonna way. we're gonna pose right. this question to Sarah. Then we're bouncing <laughs> between the Quins until we get one of the one of them have a, a mic. Um, so we're we're talking about <laughs> storytelling games yet again. Uh, what kind of games do you think in the board game end of things? really meet that storytelling need?
3: Um, wow, well, it really depends on what you mean by storytelling. Um, so, like a game like uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights, there are so many stories in that, but you're not really creating those stories. You're kind of just making ambiguous decisions and, and seeing what happens. I really love that game. Um, but uh, And then, say, take a game like... Um, Dixit, maybe, or uh, or Mysterium, uh, something where you're having to create the context of some sort of prompt that you're given. Um, I think that those are two really distinct styles, and uh, I know that a lot of people that are traditionally uh, board game players, or even traditionally role-playing gamers, role game gamers? I don't know. Um, <laughs> role players? Yeah, role players. There you go. Uh, they uh, are sometimes uncomfortable when there's not enough structure um, because they're used to having those uh, those stats and things that make up that character. You guys earlier were talking about having canned characters and created characters. Um, even in, if you're playing you know, D&D or, or Savage Worlds or any of those role-playing game systems, a lot of times you have semi-canned characters, you can create from scratch your character and just say, oh, this is the warrior of the group. Um, it's more challenging for people, I've found, generally, to to build their character when there isn't that structure in place. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I know I kind of yeah, went off of the original question a little bit. No, it makes, it makes sense, totally.
2: And Jesse and Jim, if you guys ever want to tag on to the end of what anybody else is saying, feel free. Um so let's bring that to board gaming then Jesse what do you think about mechanics because Sarah actually hit on one of our big things about you know in Arabian Nights we're really not actually telling a story we're we're reading a story
3: mm-hmm.
2: um and how do we how do we make that change mechanically in board games so that we get more of the storytelling elements what are your thoughts
5: right well i mean that th- this is the line of thinking that led us to designing mythos the the game that led to the twitter conversation argument i don't know what it's called when you like tweeted each other. Uh, that led to this. Uh... It's
0: always called an argument if it's on the internet.
5: Okay. <laughs> All right. So the, the the but is it special if it's on Twitter? Is it like a twargument?
2: A, I a, a twargument? <laughs> <laughs> My
5: god. Please. Sorry. Sorry. We're getting off topic. To um so I mean I think I think part of it is is putting a structure in place that both helps uh, the board gamers and the kinds of people who aren't familiar and comfortable with the freedom, latch on to something so they can get started. I think we were calling them hooks uh, when we were designing the game, trying to think about ways to hook players and give them things to to grapple off of. Um, But then also mechanics that encourage players to tell stories and make the content of the story matter somehow. Um, Because the other other side of the storytelling game coin that was frustrating us was uh, Once Upon a Time which is this game where you're generating story content to try and get your cards to be played, but really the best strategy is to tell um, a really, really, really terrible story with lots of particular pieces of content in it so that you can play your hand as fast as possible. And so you don't end up with a rich or interesting story if people are trying to game the system. So. It's a difficult challenge to strike a balance there in the board game environment.
0: So, uh, Jim, I'm going to ask you a question. I uh, wanted to know uh, what first got you interested in role-playing and storytelling games. And um, I think that our listeners are having trouble hearing your mic, so I don't know if you could kind of adjust that a little bit. But...
1: If you can okay. give it a little bit away from your face, it's getting muffled.
4: It's getting muffled? Is muffled. that better?
1: Uh, you don't actually have to be louder. It's just uh, give
4: yourself a little distance. Okay. Try that. Um, so
0: what, what first know, got you interested in role-playing and storytelling games?
4: Um, I'm really old, so <laughs> I read that Scholastics article years and years and years ago um, about Dungeons and & Dragons, and when I first read it, I knew instantly that that's something I wanted to play. Right. Um, so I, I hadn't even played the game yet, and I was I, already in love.
0: I was not born yet.
4: So. I was. I was born.
0: Hey, quit breaking.
4: Um, So that's that's what dragged me into it, and then I never got into... I moved around a lot when I was in high school, so I never got into the hack and slash era that everybody else got into, Um, and so by the time I was in college, I was just telling stories because that's what I thought role-playing games were supposed to do, and had I known that I was that far ahead of the curve in terms of how the story movement was going to change gaming, I probably would have sat down and wrote something that played like how I was playing back in the mid-90s.
0: So you weren't, and you weren't that, playing Dungeons & Dragons or anything? You were just kind of doing your we own sitting, thing?
4: Yeah, yeah. we were sitting around a table. We'd have character sheets, but we wouldn't really use them. We'd never make die mm-hmm. rolls. We would just engage in a world and play the characters telling a story. And so we were having agency before we knew what the word agency meant.
0: Yeah, that's really cool, actually.
4: Very interesting. Uh, totally, totally freeform. <laughs> Sarah. I yeah. Gotta, yeah. Exactly. I have a
1: question from the audience. Uh, Suzanne sure. asked, uh, "What does storytelling add to board games? Do board games need storytelling?"
3: Um. I mean, some board games can't handle storytelling, but I mean, I think storytelling adds a lot. Uh, to any game, and it, I'm kind of going to repeat myself a little bit, but um, it lets you actually play with the people that are sitting around the table with you instead of you just playing with the board. It, it adds that sort of actual communication between players.
2: Yes, <laughs> yep. um, in, in those regards, uh, do you think that... You know, storytelling games are a separate entity from role-playing games, or a separate entity from games that use storytelling. What do you think? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, yeah, that—that's a tough question. At first, I thought you were going to ask me if
5: I thought they were a separate entity, and so I mean, my my answer to Suzanne's question would have been that story—I see storytelling games as a separate genre of board games in some extent. To some extent. Um, as to to the question you just asked, I see that as sort of on a continuum with role playing games. And that might just be because I'm an RPGer first, and so I see I always see storytelling through the lens of, of role playing games, but um I mean, I it, it, it seems to me that that they sit on on a continuum where you can go from, you know, totally free form RPG systems uh like the, uh, the, the PDF of the protocol system that um, we got to look at, all the way down to a storytelling board game that has lots of structure and board and things on the table to help you move stuff around and guide you in telling your story, but doesn't give you as much agency and freedom as as on the other side. But they're all still inv- engage the players by having you create stories together.
3: So mm-hmm. you see more of a spectrum, or yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's right.
0: That makes sense. So, Sarah, what are some good examples of storytelling integrated into board games that's been done well, in your opinion? Or if you don't feel like anyone has done it well, how do you think that that should be done? (laughs) Without (laughs) (laughs) it...
4: Everyone
3: sucks!
0: I'm
4: going to do
3: horrible, hate Twitter mail. (laughs) 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 So mad. Um, Well, I mean games like Dixit are sort of the really freeform side that can still maybe technically be called a board game, uh-huh. I
0: would say. Um, Like what about something like, like Mice and Mystics?
3: Oh, That's- yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, really structured, but there's also some storytelling. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, do you? Do, I mean, do you feel like that's more like Arabian Nights, where there's, like, story there that you're reading and that you're not as involved in the story, or do you think that yeah,
3: you're... I think with Mice and Mystics, it depends on the players. You can kind yeah. of,
0: yeah, you that's can true.
3: insert a lot into it, or you can kind of just, you know, be your uh, yeah. a typical, sort of quiet gamer that just does, does what's necessary. But, yeah, you can definitely, like, get some story in there. Um, I don't know, just watching... Uh, uh, some of the board game shows um, on YouTube, like Will Wheaton's show, um, it's kind of interesting to see how much uh, they add to it just for the sake of the viewership. It kind of... Uh, they are actors. Yeah, yeah, totally, for the most part. And yeah. random guests. but yeah. But yeah, you can do a lot, I think, as a player to make a game more engaging for, you know,
0: like, sh- like Sheriff of Nottingham or something. You could kind of, you know, play the, like, rough-and-tumble Sheriff, like, you're not getting into sure. my Nottingham or something like that. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we
3: do it with Sam. See as as after it. Dark.
1: Um,
3: <laughs> I've seen it done with uh, uh, Kill Dr. Lucky, even. Even though that really doesn't have any storytelling, I've seen people
1: role-play just because they want to, because it's fun. So,
0: yeah.
1: That's cool. Uh, Jim, I was wondering, uh, I'm not as... Uh... Expert and RPG'er, as uh, many others on this panel. I'm curious, what are some of the kind of like the sins of newbies to RPGs? What are some of the things to avoid or things to make sure you do when you're jumping into an RPG?
4: I think the most important thing to do is to listen, to pay attention. Um, looks like you're still talking, but I don't hear anything.
2: No, he's okay. He can keep going.
4: All right, uh, so I think one of the most important things to do is to to listen and pay attention. I think if it's your first time playing, 90% of your time should probably be spent listening and paying attention to how everybody else is doing it. Because they're probably committing sins too, but at the very least you're learning the social contract of how this group operates. And maybe that social contract's not for you, and you need to go somewhere else to get the gaming experience you want, but... Listening is the most important thing you think you can do. The most important thing you should probably avoid is thinking that winning or succeeding all the time is story. And story is not success. Story mm-hmm. is the side effects or the the repercussions of taking action. Um, and there's mm-hmm. so many ways that I can describe that and so many games that I could point to to say, this is that done right. Um, but I think... I want to hear. Uh, okay, well, I... I Off the top of my head, um, the very first one that comes to my mind is something I designed called The Carcass. Um, And I don't like it when people do what I just did, which is to talk about their own games. I think Apocalypse World does it pretty well some of the time, Um, so maybe I should talk about that. I think Apocalypse World would be so much better if rolling a 6 or less meant something. And right now in the game it doesn't. But when you roll a 7 to a 9, you get this mixed result thing, which is one of the coolest things going on in gaming. And it's why everybody's gravitating to Apocalypse mm-hmm. World because you have this success-failure thing going on and it's much more interesting than just cutting the dragon's head off.
2: Hmm. <clears throat> interesting. I, I want to talk to you guys about role-playing versus role-playing. So rolling the dice versus playing the role. Uh, Sarah, in your opinion, what's more rewarding to you as a player and then as a designer, what are you trying to do in terms of getting people to get out of the rolling of dice and into the playing of a role? or vice versa?
3: Okay. Um, I think that it's important to have a good mix between, uh, well, like people say, to have a good mix between strategy and chance. It's also good to have uh, a good mix between chance and role-playing. So rolling the dice has to mean something, but if it's the only thing that means something, it's kind of, I don't know. when I'm designing something, I want people to be able to try all kinds of things and to not have just one or two ways that they can go. Um, I want them to come up with something on their own and try it and have it do something that maybe I didn't even expect. That's sort of when I feel the most successful in something that I've written is when someone does something really cool that I never even thought of and it works.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I want to follow that up with Jesse. I'm curious, so what are some uh, different motivations as a designer you might use instead of winning? What are some ways that you can uh, point people or pull people in a certain direction as a designer?
5: So, uh, I guess to to spin off of some of the things that Jim was just talking about, one of my favorite mechanics to see in role-playing games is when failures are desirable for story reasons, and failures are significant. Um, so, I mean, that's something I've been trying to explore in board game design recently um, with limited success. Uh, so, so to give a, a role-playing game example of just uh, a, a, a game system that I think does this well is uh, Mouse card. Um, with the way that they have uh, the experience system set up, you need to fail sometimes in order for your skills to improve. And what I've seen this do to players is it encourages them to throw their characters into circumstances where they realistically shouldn't attempt to do that or they shouldn't try to do that. It's beyond their skill. They challenge themselves um, because they need to get those failures to improve their character uh, and then sometimes they succeed, in spite of their efforts to try and fail, and it leads to these really interesting, exciting twists in the story, all of which is motivated by this strange, mechanical desire to fail at a task. So, I mean, I think failures are more interesting than successes, and I love it when games embrace that.
0: Cool. So um, speaking of, like, failures and emotions, um, Jim, so storytelling and role-playing usually adds in, like, some emotional aspect because you have a character and you're typically emotionally tied to that character. How do you differentiate between, like, real life and in-character? Like, how do you mitigate that, you know, make sure that people aren't, if I'm really attacking someone in-game, making sure that everyone understands that that's role-play and that that's not, like... I really don't like you as a person, this is just we're playing a game. Like, how do you, how do, you do you struggle with that or how do you mitigate that?
4: Um, well, I'm not 14 anymore, so I don't necessarily <laughs> have that problem. Um, but I think with maturity, that stuff goes away. With trust, that kind of problem goes away. Again, the social contract, if you're playing with people you know or at least everybody recognizes the difference where the line is drawn. Uh, a lot of groups, they will just, once you're in the game, you're in character. And they that rule is established for those very kinds of for those same reasons is because people take things too seriously or they don't stay in the game or they go on tangents or whatever. Any of those elements can ruin the fun. And if you were not, I don't know what the word is here, but if you're not mature enough to handle the fantasy versus reality edge of of gaming, then I I don't have a very good answer for you, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: So do you, just a follow-up question, do you, um, do you like ban things like cell phones at the table or like outside distractions or I mean, or do all of your friends just kind of play without those or do you feel like you use those things and everybody still is in the game?
4: Well, actually, we, we just played at Sarah's house <laughs> on Saturday night and nobody had their cell phone out and I didn't <laughs> have to say that. It just—I don't know if it just happened, Sarah. I don't Correct. know your friends well enough, but
3: yeah, um, we we're having fun. So <laughs> yeah,
4: we focused <laughs> yeah. on the game, but yeah, you know, real life creeps in. People need to have their cell phones handy in case the baby is sick and they've got to race out of there. Yeah, and that happens. So I don't know what the—I don't have a right or wrong answer to that. It just depends on who your group is and how immersive they want to be.
3: I—I uh-huh. <laughs> I will say this, if you don't mind me—jump
4: uh, in, go me. for yeah. it. Okay.
3: Um, so I've been with a new group before that I had never gamed with, and I had to tell them like I'm, I'm not an asshole. It, my character is is not very nice, but it's not me. I swear, I like you guys. Yeah. So I mean, you never That's know awesome. with new players. Sometimes it's a little bit iffy because you know. Yeah, it, new, um, yeah, new
0: groups are rough. Sure.
3: Yeah, yeah. Once you get to know people you're gaming with, it's a lot easier to just sort of dive in. I am
0: a really great in-game asshole.
1: Like, really great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, okay, I'm going to follow that up with you, Sarah, because I'm curious. Could you give some tips uh, to, our, to our listeners who might uh, be starting a new group or trying to make you know, a group that's inclusive, that you know, is a safe space that people can really explore and have fun? What are some tips that you would give to people to make a group work well?
3: Wow. Okay. Um, A safe space. Uh, If you're going to play a game that has really difficult material, um, it's probably a good idea to say like, hey, there might be some triggers around these things that we're going to talk about. So this isn't a game we should play. Let's do something else. Um, But just in general, how how to have people feel more comfortable with Sort of getting into their characters—is that more the question? Yeah, yeah.
1: Just okay. especially if you have new new players, like, what are some of the new things players. that you might you might say?
3: Um, I guess if you want to make sure that everybody feels okay, just kind of say, "Hey, so we're going to be role playing. If if somebody's, you know, <laughs> being an asshole, it's probably just role playing. I mean, I guess I I don't really game with people that tend to have issues with that, but um, I'm just careful about it because I tend to worry too much about those things. Um, If you're a new player and you're not sure if you're doing the right thing, like Jim said, just listen for a while and kind of see what everyone else is doing. If they're just going with it, then you know that you're pretty good to just, you know, get into it.
4: I would like to add to Sarah's answer. Um, sure, go ahead. Please, on yeah. the, I live on the west side of Washington, near Seattle, and there's what's called the veil. It, everybody in the area sort of uses this in their games, and the idea is that if something comes up in the game that you don't like, you just... And, and it's especially used with new groups. when you, We do a lot of meetups. Um, and when you call the veil, you're just xing out something in the game. You don't have to explain why you don't like it. People just write it out of the story immediately, and... You just continue playing. And it could be something like spiders or the color blue or somebody named Nick. Some sort of something that bothers you about the story. And because you're coming to it from all these different backgrounds, you don't know what's gonna upset somebody. That's so really, you, the you, idea. you just yeah. call like
2: uh, we're putting that through the veil, or how
4: do you how do you do that? Yeah, you said like, can we bail that out or can we X that out? And then we, okay. everybody just agrees to it. And I we've never yeah. we've never had a problem with it, we've never questioned anybody. Um, we don't have to come up with a, a lot and I think a lot of that has to do with most of the people that show up to our group are older, but other people mm-hmm. have shown up and said something and we're always more than happy to to exit out. And I'm always clear with somebody. I say, don't feel embarrassed. Just do it. Yeah, That's, that's interesting. really good. That's awesome. really. I, I, mean, actually, we do, I do that in class. I don't
2: know why I don't do that when yeah. I role play.
3: I yeah. just remembered an incident actually where it, it, it was it was pre-game. We were starting a superpowers campaign and uh, It was a villains campaign, we were all super villains, and we decided, here are the things that we're not going to include in our villainry, because it's just too, too much, you know. Right, so So,
2: you, you established a social contract before you started.
3: We did, yeah. And
2: then people have ways of, if it happens in the middle of it, oh, I forgot to mention that at the beginning, without breaking character, they can just say that's through the veil or whatever, right?
3: Yeah. yeah, I'm actually not familiar with that, Jim. Well, now different you different are. Things, but <laughs>
2: but and now yeah. we all are.
0: We're, we're all on the veil. Now. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah it's, a, it's a good system. Yeah, yeah, I can lock that thing. Uh, Jim, let's let's go back to some design questions. Uh, I think out of all of us, you're probably the only one who's designed a role-playing game and a published board game. Um, what's the difference What's easier? What's the difference? Holy crap. How much time do we have? A lot. That's a huge question. Can you narrow it down a little bit for me? What is the quintessential difference? I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, okay, let's 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 talk about um uh let's talk I about get... balance. What's easier to balance?
4: And how do you balance in a role playing game where it is so free? I that's a really hard question to answer, too. Um, the more rules you have, the harder it is to balance, right? I've worked right. on collectible card games, too. And so 30 oh. cards in a collectible card game, you've got 330 permutations that can lead to rules complications.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So um, when I sit down and write a protocol, I don't have to ever worry about game balance. I wrote a board game or a collectible card game, it takes months and months and months to worry about just one aspect of the game. Right. So. And is that why... I don't there, know that's a good answer to your question. No, no. It, but
2: but, it, I'm it, sorry. but it's, a, it's an interesting answer because I think it, it kind of goes towards what a major difference of these things, of, of the game systems are, that role-playing games are sort of almost self-correcting by mm-hmm. the players inside the game because there is that agency, or the
4: GM if there is one. Um, I... I think that's based on the game you're playing. I think if I look at Paizo and Pathfinder as the cross between Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic the Gathering. And right. I, I think that the amount of crunch that exists inside Pathfinder exists to give so much agency as to not be able to be self-correcting anymore. Because every book adds so many more complications and a power that is 1.1% Times stronger than the last power they did in the previous book and those things start to sneak in because they start to be able to stackable in a way that an anorak player is going to have a better time finding than the person that designed it in the first place unless they're also the same level anorak
2: (laughs) I like that. Steph, you're next.
0: Sorry, I had to unmute. Um, So to Jesse, um, what do you think about whenever you're, if you're designing an RPG it's, it's role-playing and it's storytelling, would you think about theme first? Is that, like, an obvious thing that you think about? Like, I want this kind of setting and this kind of feel? Or do you actually think about, like, what kind of system? Like, is this going to be in d 20 or am I going to use cards, or...? So,
5: yeah. so, so designing RPGs isn't my wheelhouse. But as it so happens, I do have uh, a horrible hack-together affair on my shelf that I made a few, a few months ago. Um... And and the design process was actually very straightforward. Uh, I had a goal. I needed, I wanted a good system to use for play-by-post games, um, but I also wanted some board gaming mechanics in there because I'm a board gamer, my friends are board gamers, and I wanted there to be some, like, high-level strategy stuff that was going on in a narrative-driven game. Um, but since I'm not, I'm, so, so that, that's the answer to your question. That's that's how I, I set out about it. Like, here's the, my design goals, I want these things. And now, I'm not an RPG designer, so I'm smarter than to sit down and try and reinvent the wheel. So I picked up this really, really slim system called Wushu, um, which I find really fun. My friends and I love to throw down an evening of Wushu, uh... If, if if we don't know anything else to do and we got a dozen d6s handy, and I just layered some board game mechanics, I borrowed liberally from the Mouse Guard advancement system, and I made a little hodgepodge of things that I liked in RPGs. So, but sit down with some goals, and and I mean this is good advice for designing any game. Like like sit down and, and make design goals and write a little document, and every time. You're working on the game. Turn back to that document and remind yourself where you started and what you were setting out to do.
0: That's good advice. That's really good advice. You are an expert. That is your wheelhouse. (laughs) That's totally your
3: wheelhouse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really expert.
5: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd consider myself an expert if I had a published RPG. I guess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or somewhat of one, anyways. Right? Yeah. I would like to
4: add to that that yeah, if you ahead. have if you have a design goal in mind, and I agree, Jesse, absolutely have a design goal, have a mission statement about what you want your game to be, but also know that it's you're probably going to gravitate away from it at some point. At some point, yeah. at some point sure. you're going to find out that your design idea was a bad one. And you're, but there's still something there worth saving and you're going to move to yeah. a new level. Uh, yeah. My 100 AD board game started as a really, really, really bad game and I kept working at it and now it's nothing like what it started at. So if I adhered to my design document, I'd be publishing a bad game.
3: That's a really good point, actually, that you have to let your game evolve. I I think writing RPGs um, is a lot like like writing stories, honestly, because you have an idea, and then it evolves over time, and
1: yeah. Uh, Jim, I'm curious. uh, When it comes to you've designed board games, you've designed RPGs, uh, how do you go about playtesting RPGs?
4: I knew this question was coming next. I don't know how I knew this question was coming next. You're psychic. Um, I said this once in an interview, and I'm going to say it again. Most playtesting is a waste of time. And I don't mean that to be hurtful, but uh, you're sitting down designing something that you've been working on for, say, 500 hours, and somebody has spent 30 minutes playing it, and they think they're an expert already. And they're going to give you feedback and advice that isn't very useful. And until those playtesters have sat down and played every iteration of your game, can you actually stop and listen to what they're saying? Now, you should listen to it, and you should take it all in, but... 90% 90% of isn't going to help you on the level that you think it's going to help you. So sit back, shut up, listen to people, don't argue, <laughs> take notes, and then walk away and do what you want anyway.
0: Jim, Jim is obviously just role-playing an asshole right now. Oh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's actually
3: his well, yeah. That, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, Jim, I don't really think you're an asshole, by the way. No, I'm an <laughs> asshole. It's okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> I love you, Jim. Um, uh, <laughs> this so is why Sarah I doesn't actually... let me talk
4: to people. <laughs> yeah,
0: Sarah, did you want? To, did you have anything to say about
3: that? Yeah, I mean, I totally understand uh, Jim's point um, about you know people maybe just play like one little sliver of what you've written and made, but um, I play test the crap out of anything that I ever do because I I want. People to find the holes so that I can fix it. Um, what I don't like is getting the feedback after it's already published because then it's too late. Yeah. And I would kind of just, you know, rather let it let it live as it is. But yeah, I I, I enjoy playtesting. Uh,
5: and just just to add a third perspective on the playtesting thing, I mean, I think playtesting is the most important essential and essential part of game design. And I spend most of my game design time actually playtesting because at the end of the day I'm designing a game to be experienced by people and it's only through observations and the opinions of those who've experienced it that I can assess whether or not I've been successful at designing something that's fun and can generate fun and generate the kinds of experiences that I'm trying to create and without those playtesters I've got nothing except my imagination of what it's going to be like
3: and the fact is you're so invested in your own story and ideas and game, you sometimes don't really know what the product is to you know, externally. Yeah. If that does that make I, sense? I think
4: you have to know where the feedback's coming from. If it's oh, somebody or, yeah. you trust, then you should listen to what they say. If it's the third time you've heard it, you should probably listen to what they're saying. Most playtested feedback that I get is people trying to thumbprint what you've already designed and get their version of the game made not your version of the game made 100% uh, I agree I definitely agree with that Jim there's a yeah. lot of that And um, that doesn't make but well, bl- I don't want to say the playtesters are bad people nope. they're human just like you and so they're coming to it from a very egocentric point of view
0: My favorite quote about that is <clears throat> I love the game don't change a thing just throw it in the trash <laughs> <laughs>
4: She said
2: that
0: uh, someone someone jokingly
2: said that. Uh, okay. Uh, Sarah, let's talk about Savage Worlds uh, of Horror. Horror. Oh, horror. yeah. Savage yeah, Tales of Horror. Savage a, Tales of Horror, sorry. Yeah.
3: No, it's okay. It's based, It's for Savage Worlds
2: systems. And I figured it oh, was. Perfect. And that's your project,
3: and. It's a lot of people's project.
2: Ah. And okay. one of
3: the authors there are, okay. I don't know. I'm hoping Brendan will text me with a number, but yeah, there are 15 or so. Um, Shane Hensley, uh, the the owner of uh, Pinnacle, he's actually one of the authors in that book too. But uh, yeah, we wrote one for uh, East Texas University, which is kind of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer ish setting. Sure. Um, yeah, kind of a modern day, um, uh, you know, university horror setting. It's pretty
0: I fun. Think. Yeah, we were able to, I am uh, play
2: intrigued. Test. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> I like Savage Worlds a lot. so Yeah, Jesse and I <laughs> like really enjoy cool. Savage Worlds a lot too. So much so that I have it Look, right in front of me.
3: It's oh, a source book. Oh yeah, that's right. You told me you backed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, I didn't back it.
3: <clears throat> oh.
2: I just, I just have it. Oh, <laughs>
3: okay. Cool. Yeah, um, we like Scott well. that wrote that's so actually Scott Woodard is going to be at uh, Comic Con in the Rose City Comic Con in Portland. Um, Ooh, excellent! September eighteenth, I want to say. Yeah,
0: that's
2: cool. I actually yeah. want to go to more Comic Cons and less Game Cons in some year. Stop Oddly it I know it's weird though. It's weird. It's weird.
0: I mean, go to Comic Cons too, but you have to still go to all the gaming conventions that I'm going to.
2: I know. Of course, <laughs> I will try. Uh, Daryl, are you up next, buddy?
0: No, I'm up next. Oh, to good Jim. To Speaking of, I'm glad that you did a like, Kickstarter segue because I was going to ask Jim, what kind of um, RPGs and storytelling games have you supported, and have you like, have you backed anything on Kickstarter? Do you look at stuff on Kickstarter, or what's your general feel about? There seems like there's a ton of RPGs on Kickstarter like lately, so I didn't know if you looked into any of those.
4: Um. yeah I've backed a lot in the past Um, I really like Darkest Age I backed that one Um, I tend to avoid anything that just looks derivative or poorly presented bad graphics that sort of thing um, but I honestly if I see something I like I want to back it because I want to see these guys get their product made because um, I know what it's like to be at that point where you're struggling to get your ideas across to somebody and Kickstarter is sort of a way of being heard, if you will.
0: Can you think um, of some of your favorites for that that you've seen on Kickstarter?
4: Uh, Darkest Age. No. I backed, um, I backed. Uh, uh, what's that magic one? There's World of Magic, or it's the one that Ross Kalman just did. I forget what the title is. It's something of magic, Land of Magic, World of Magic, something like that. And you get this nice scroll map that you roll out um, to move on and play on. And I played it before it was Kickstarted. Um, i played the old version, and it, I love it. So that's probably one of the best on there I've seen.
3: I'm going to look that one up.
0: The last one that I backed was Night Witches by Bully Pulpit.
4: Yeah, um, I knew that one was going to get made, so I didn't feel the need to back it. up. worried about I, it? Yeah. But I'm playing it right now, and it's oh, got, awesome. got some stellar elements that I'm going to steal. Um,
0: <laughs>
4: I, I don't know how you're supposed to play that entire campaign. It is just too long. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But good it's a it's a good game. It's a good
0: game.
4: <laughs> uh, I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna point this one to Jesse, but I'm curious. Uh, we just talked about some new games that are coming out at Kickstarter. What are some uh, games that you would highlight from the past that were some of your favorites all time, and that you would highly recommend uh, to people that are trying to find an RPG that's good for them?
5: RPGs that I would highly recommend to people. Yeah. Um, well, I mean. A lot of finding a good introductory RPG is knowing where you're coming from. It's, it's it's kind of like introducing someone to a new kind of food. You need to get a sense of their palate before you can give a good recommendation. Um, but, I mean, that said, I've... Uh, if they had your palate. If they had my palate? Oh. Um, <laughs> if you knew what you knew now. If I, I knew you? what I knew now, I mean, I would still have made myself be uh, a game master for... a. Three point five edition D anD D group in grade ten because none of my friends wanted to read the book. I would still make myself <laughs> do that, but I don't think that's the road for anybody else. Um, so I, I I think really light systems are a good way to get people uh, into the game. I often recommend Mouse Guard because um, I just I think it's a fantastic little thing built off a fantastic little comic. There's lots of hooks that that uh, new players can leverage on to get. Uh, into the game without having to feel like they need to learn about this giant fantasy world or create a giant world. Um, they can just read the comic and then participate in it very, very quickly. And the game system is very, very uh, is very simple, easy to explain, uh, and fun to GM, too. Um, if people are looking for something a little more crunchy and they don't mind a game where they're probably going to have to make seven or eight characters, I always throw them to Savage Worlds or some <laughs> variation thereof. Additionally, if people are the kinds of people that are interested in really fancy, cool, weird, smash-up worlds, I also throw them to Savage Worlds because some of the existing settings for that are just phenomenal to read and play through. Um, Necessary Evil is one of the, my favorite games that I've run. So
3: Yeah, that was the villain campaign that I was referencing I was, earlier. <laughs> I was
5: wondering. So, yeah. so so those are my top two, depending on the individual's needs and tastes. Is Mouse Guard or Savage?
3: <clears throat> They're actually coming out with a new version of Necessary Evil, just FYI. Awesome.
5: I'll keep going.
3: Breaking
0: funny. news! Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Tremulous is a good one, too. It's a good little uh, RPG. to You know, Reality blurs, does it. Yeah yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah.
0: Nice. I like Fiasco for getting new people into like role-playing and storytelling, or um, actually, yeah. Dungeon, Crawl, Dungeon Crawl Classics, I kind of like, actually. It's Probably Jim hates that, right? Because it's, like, probably everything that he hates. But
3: I do like the relationship-based um, stuff that's in Fiasco. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jim, you have See, some... See, and I always uh... thought
4: protocol was better than Fiasco. I don't know how I got to that conclusion.
2: <laughs> we can talk about protocol.
4: Yeah.
2: And should. Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that before, because we're about five minutes from the end of the show. So... Tell us about well, Protocol. Well, it's the best
4: version of everything we've been talking about so far. I mean, you shouldn't play any other <laughs> stuff. You should play Protocol. Um,
1: nice.
4: I uh, I originally devised it because, first of all, it was Ross Kalman's Life on Mars that inspired it. Um, it was the simplicity mm-hmm. of the language in that game. But the reason I sat down and made it, I was sick and tired of the two-hour prep to all these zero prep story games that people were making, and they were one-shots, and you would sit there and make characters all day. Shock is a fantastic role-playing game, but it takes 90 minutes to 2 hours just to set up. And the original idea for Protocol is you're done in 2 hours. You make your characters in 10 minutes, you're into the story, and you're done with the whole thing in 2 hours. And you have So you have time to play 2 of them in an evening. And then I made the price point 3 dollars so... Why everybody in the world isn't playing Protocol, I can't figure out.
0: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna play it right now.
4: You should by yourself. I, I am right playing it. Now. Right Tell us right how now. it turns yeah. out.
0: We this
3: actually had Jim cool. over to uh, our little. Oh, I'm so sorry. Good.
4: Oh,
0: you're fine. You, you go, Sarah.
3: Good. We had Jim over to our uh, our local game con, and and uh, some of my friends went through one of the protocols, and they were they are still talking about it. So that's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking uh, Jesse and I do uh, a bunch of, well, Jesse mostly, but he's going away to UK the UK in, like, what, 14 days? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the cafe that's near our, our place, we usually, uh, like, had a D&D campaign going for a little while. And I'm
5: still running it. Helena and my
2: wife is actually taking it over for me next week. <laughs> oh, good. Cool. But I was thinking that like, we could do, like, like protocol... Phase or something because they're just they're kind of one-offs, right?
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brendan that isn't here because of mic issues. Uh, he actually puts them in his campaigns, his Savage Worlds campaigns. Yeah. Okay. Cool.
2: Well, you know what? We're up to that time where we got to go to last questions. But after this, we're going to do our after show. So if you're on the YouTube links, you can find us. But we'll, we'll of course, post the after show afterwards. Uh, so let's go to last questions. Uh, let's see. Who am I on? Jim, I'm on for you, sir. Um, what is one hint you would give to new game designers who are trying to inject more story into their game?
4: One hint? You mean
2: advice? Yeah, a piece of advice from a veteran, <laughs> um, such as yourself.
4: Yeah, that's a tough question. You um, put me on the spot. I think I think the thing that stops story from getting into to games is the adherence to rules and the adherence to success. I kind of said this earlier. Mm-hmm. I think most board games have a framework that stops them from having more story, and I think story is a byproduct of people reacting to decisions. Um, video games don't really typically have stories. They have a movie that you watch, but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if you play The Walking Dead video games, the you've only made decisions that affect the outcome. The story was the same all the way up to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's very little story. There's a lot of narrative, but not a lot of story.
2: Ah, uh, That's, that's I, a critical difference, right? Good yeah. point. Good point.
4: So I think the advice I would give to game designers is to allow people to react to things that go on in the game, but don't take away the player's agency. Um, I could I could uh, circulate this back to something I've designed, but I don't want to. I don't think that's fair. But I think if you were to sit down and do, say, uh, a Dead of Winter, mm-hmm. Dead of Winter in concept is genius, but in execution it's it fails to have the level of story that I wish that it had because you're sitting there listening to somebody else talk for so long. And maybe my game experience with it was not very good, but a lot of the time was just spent watching people think.
2: Hmm. Good, okay. Okay. Who's up next? Daryl, are you next?
0: We're done, bro. I
1: was... Uh well all right uh I'll go next then okay because I Thanks guess so. we
0: don't follow the notes
1: uh so I can't see them anymore sorry they they've scrolled way way up it's all good you can scroll up uh but I'll go next to Jesse and ask uh, you've been on the show a few times and uh obviously so you've kind of handled this question so I'm gonna reword it in a little bit of a way but I'm curious if uh we've already, we've already talked about some of the restrictions to adding story to games uh can you uh encourage or maybe inspire uh some designers out there uh what they're missing you know what with, with because of a lack of story so that maybe people will get a hunger for you know what some of the things you engage by 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 having more story yeah.
5: Well, well, I mean, Sarah, uh, at least I, I, I thought that Sarah had provided that that motivation earlier when she had yep. mentioned that story, like when you have story elements in the game and you give players agency and let them uh, you know, react, as Jim was saying, to what's happening in the game, it all of a sudden becomes a game where you're playing with the people around the table, not playing with the board that other people are also playing with. Um, And so, I mean, it's about bringing the sort of full table experience together and getting everybody involved in in a new dimension of play, I think, compared to what normally happens in a a board
3: game. (laughs)
2: Okay. It's
3: very quiet, but... yeah, thank you. That was really a good job paraphrasing me. I was wondering how how <laughs> that was
0: received and I feel very happy with,
3: with how no, it was, that was received.
0: <laughs> okay, last last question, to Sarah. Yeah, last okay. last last
2: question. That was the last question. That was the last question?
3: Is that,
0: last? I, that, that was a question. I was, I was questioning your question. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Are these questions or statements? This is,
0: this is your story, Sid.
2: <laughs> well, see, it's not because somebody's supposed to close so I can do the technical part of this.
1: Which is after last question.
2: Yes, oh, somebody needs on. to ask the last
1: question. Whoa. This is a really professional okay. show, guys. I know. <laughs> a well-oiled machine. It usually is. You well, you think this was not episode 50? If there
3: isn't a last question, can I just say thank you so much for having us on the show?
1: You
0: can right. say that.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank that's you my so. last question,
0: Sarah. Excellent. How do you how do you feel about being on the show?
1: Excellent. <laughs> Beautiful setup. So I feel what honored
3: to be on the show. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> With that said, I just want to thank. Uh, both Sarah and Brandon for a little short uh cameo really he he left some profound thoughts if you can read his lips uh, um, I also want to just really thank uh Jesse Jim and Sarah for being on the show, challenging our viewers with some great ideas and inspiration uh I'm hoping to see uh some new crossroads and some new uh uh ways that people can learn from this and Integrate this one way or the other. I also want to give a, a little plug. I, I don't know why I didn't think about mentioning this earlier, but my friend Andrew, who I I live in Kitchener with, uh, did uh, dark uh, did a nice dark urban uh, urban shadows RPG. So I gotta give him a shout out. He's been powered by the Apocalypse system. Uh, so I don't know why I wasn't thinking about that, but I need to give him a little plug, Uh, and also mention our upcoming uh, two weeks. So next week we have an episode with Isaac Vega and Paul Peterson uh, talking about card games and designing them, and Brittany Bowe will be on uh, that. And then uh, in two weeks it's our one year anniversary, so Mm -hmm. um, check that out. It'll be a fun episode. We'll have a few guests appearances, maybe uh, a beard that we missed might make a cameo from uh, Paris, and uh, also uh, Tiffany Ralph said she would uh, be on the show as well. So I'm
0: crashing, so so I'm going to find the link somehow. I'm, I'm going to get it and crash.
1: Nice. Alright, well, on that note, have a great night. Keep making great games. We look forward to trying your game soon. <laughs> back.